a world with this additional dimension of the possibility of re remote working, you know, adds as a possibility and right. some VCs will make a lot of it, some won't because they don't like it, but it's got to be a good thing to have that additional option. Sure, there's been a magnet effect of talent moving to the US, but it's not true in all cases. And if I'm right that um, venture investors are taking a more global view, that remote working over Zoom has made that a bit easier. Yeah. It should, it should be the case that over time, the UK gets to keep more of its talent. Welcome to Straight Talk, where we cut through the BS and get straight into real conversations with some of the best minds on the planet. I am your host, Af Mahotra. I am blessed to be leading these extraordinary discussions and asking tough questions that then elicit insightful answers, accelerating our awareness of the biggest issues impacting our lives and the future of humanity. Hi, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Asmal Hotra again, and I have a magnificent guest on my show today. It is um, no other than the, the great author and journalist, of course, uh, Sebastian Malaby. Sebastian, welcome to Straight Talk. What a pleasure to have you on our show today. Yeah, great to be with you, Af. Uh, Sebastian is currently in London, which is great, but he shapeshifts and moves around and is like, um, you know, traveling from London to New York to other parts of the world. And he's a, he's a, he's a compelling author. And his latest book, in fact, which is what we're going to discuss today, The Power Law, a VC and the, and the Making of the New Future, Venture Capital, um, is going to be, you know, the topic of discussion today. But of course, we're going to go, to, go down different pathways and alleyways, as we say. Uh, he's written a whole series of other books, uh, the man who knew in 2016 more money than God in 2010, the world's banker, uh, 2004, and of course numerous articles and um, publications all over the world, and quite ambidextrous actually as an author. Um, and perhaps uh, this, I'm going to try and pull the best out of his 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 wisdom and knowledge today. So Sebastian, I'm going to kick right off into first the person that is Sebastian. So before, when we do a straight talk, as you know, before we go into the book or we talk about the theme or the topic, we'd like to know who you are and how did you end up at this place? How did you end up writing this book and other books? And tell us a little bit about, you know, your personal story. It would be so, so um, engaging for our audience. Sure. I grew up with a bit of an international background. My uh, mother was French. My dad was British. And he was a British diplomat, career diplomat. So we moved around the world when I was a kid. Uh, we had a period in Manhattan when I was a gum chewing, baseball playing, Central Park going, uh, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old. Uh, there was another period when we were living in Moscow. Uh, and at that point, I went to a boarding school in England. Um, he was in uh, Germany three times, my dad. Um, so there was this sort of international uh, background. I was always interested in politics. I think my views of um, state control of the economy were very much informed by the absence of ice cream when I was <laughs> an 11 year old going for walks with my dad. And, you know, we walked up to a, a kiosk one day. This kiosk sold nothing but vanilla ice cream. That's all they had. Mm. Uh, and my dad tried to get me a vanilla ice cream and there was nothing for sale. And so my dad is all in Russian is chatting with this guy who's supposed to be selling the ice cream. So, okay, how long have you not had ice cream for? Oh, about three weeks. So you've been coming to work every day with nothing to sell? Yeah, that's right. And mm. when this was all translated back to me, I realized the sort of 
misallocation of human capital that comes. <laughs> I didn't put in those terms when I was 11, but I kind of thought, wow, this is a crazy system. And uh, anyway, so I grew up around these, these political ideas and international relations. I always wanted to work abroad. Um, I thought of following my dad into diplomacy and actually went so far as to get a place in the foreign office. But um, really my first love was writing. Um, I'd always enjoyed um, that at school and at university and I'd been editor of a student magazine and so forth. So plan mm. A was to try to be a foreign correspondent. And, right. um, and so that's when I, what I managed to be. Mm. Mm. And are you, um, are you traveling back and forth from New York on a very regular basis? And, and what happened during COVID, of course, because we were grounded for a good couple of years. How, how did you sort of manage then wherever you ended up basing yourself from? Yeah, I mean, so just briefly, I, I, you know, did become a foreign correspondent. I was working for The Economist. I was in Africa. I was in Japan. And then they sent me to um, Washington. Right. And um, for various reasons, I switched employer at that point, joined The Washington Post. Then after that, I joined a think tank called the Council of Foreign Relations. So this is all in Washington, D.C. And I was there for so long, mm. um, 18 years, that I actually naturalized as an American. I never thought I would come back and live in the U.K., Right. Um, I did come back, mostly because my wife got a great job. Um, but um, I still really think of myself as an American in terms of my professional interests. I spend a lot of time both in New York and Washington, D.C. I go to the West Coast to hang out with veg capitalists because of my book about that. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm back and forth, very much transatlantic. Um, and I, you know, during COVID, I had to interrupt that. But as you know, with Zoom, Mm. You can kind of be mentally in the U.S., even if you're not physically. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, um, but now with the end of lockdown, I've resumed probably flying more than I ought to back and forth. Got it. Understood. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about all aspects of venture capital in the context of a post-COVID world today, if that's OK. And um, the only reason for that is the book is so brilliant. You must read it. So this is to my audience, of course, you must read it uh, from end to end. And um, there are elements of that book that talk to this new world that we exist in. This, this, this setup where we've got this rectangular screen and we're not meeting face to face. We're doing this rapidly, quickly, low cost, you know, with uh, a, a low carbon footprint although we're consuming a little bit of energy and we're able to, you know, reach out to people all over the world. I mean, you could have been sitting in New York, um, you know, at this point, not necessarily in London. And actually we are both in London, but we're doing a Zoom uh, broadcast. And that has a lot to do with how venture capital and venture capitalists are looking at startups these days. And I know as a startup myself, that the dialogue has moved away from, well, come to the office wherever it may be, to, well, why don't we jump on the video conference? I'm not saying that wasn't happening before. I remember pre-COVID days, we were using, before Zoom came about, we were using things like WebEx, you know, if you remember that. And it was good and go-to meeting. And I remember using those during my pitches at the early stages of my startup. And, um, but it wasn't as uh, comfortable. It wasn't, you know, also socially and so on. And the habits weren't there. But now, of course, there's been a huge transformation. So, Maybe I'll start first, but before we get into the book and what is the power law, uh, what are the big what are the big shifts you've seen in the last three years in a post-COVID 
environment in relation to venture capital. It could be the structure of venture capital. It could be tax legal. It could be the allocation of money. Just give me some observations. It'd be great to get your viewpoints on that. No, I think the assumption that you need to be in the office has been questioned all over the economy, but venture capital is sort of in the forefront. Um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, one of the famous uh, Silicon Valley firms, has pretty much given up the idea that, you know, you've, you've got to be physically in the office. I mean, the, at least one of the founders has moved to LA. Um, and so there is this kind of comfort with remote working and a sense also that, you know, I was listening to um, Ben Horowitz, one of the named founders of the firm, yeah. talk about, you know, the kind of aha moment he had when one of his employees said, it is the first time I've been able to juggle having kids at home mm. and being a kind of effective professional. Mm. And when you hear that, you realize this is just not a kind of nice to have. This is a must have for people. Once right. they've tasted this, they're not going back. So if you want to retain that talent, you've got to make it comfortable for them and be tolerant of remote work. Mm. Um, so I think I think that's one thing that, you know, the tech world is experiencing this remote thing, maybe in a more sort of advanced way than many other sectors. And I think that kind of blurs into the second point I would make, which is that venture capital, you know, used to be this sort of weirdly localized Silicon Valley clustered thing, right? Correct. Yeah. And it was this sort of irony that, you know, VCs were backing companies that were doing stuff like, you know, Skype and, you know, social media apps and Slack and what have you. And it was all about, you know, work can go remote. But actually, if you wanted to get funded, it was a big advantage to be in Silicon Valley. And often the funders would say, hey, we'll fund you if you move your headquarters uh, to Silicon Valley because they wanted right. to be able to drive to your board meeting and for it to be convenient. Um, and that double standard almost has gone. Um, there's a much bigger sense of geographic um, equal opportunity now. Um, mm. Within the US, we've seen new hubs in, um, you know, Austin and Miami, on top of the resurgence of New York and Boston. Um, you have outposts like Denver. Um, mm. And then outside the US, there's been even more of a remarkable um, proliferation of venture dollars. Um, so Europe is really exciting, I think, right now. Um, huge growth of sophistication in the ecosystem in London for venture investing. And I'm very bullish on European startups and European tech because of that. Mm. Because I think Europe's always had terrific software engineers. It's a rich market. It had many of the ingredients you need for a good tech ecosystem. But what it lacked was sort of this culture where you could fail and it's okay. You could have another shot. And that culture is the is is the product of venture capital, and I think therefore that you know it's exciting that VC has become during COVID especially more comfortable with remote, more comfortable comfortable with geographic spread. The world is a bit flatter than it was. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that uh, because. If you think about productivity as well, you know, it's, the same example goes for a corporation and meetings. So the pace at which you can analyze deals and you can have conversations with startup founders who are pitching, um, however they may pitch, 
thanks to technology, has increased, the velocity has increased. So you can qualify a whole bunch of deals much, much faster than ever before because you don't have to, there's no lag any longer. And the cost of doing that has gone down and the convenience factor has gone up because you could still be in a comfortable environment and not have to traipse into central London or, you know, downtown New York to be in the office to go meet with an AF or, you know, um, a Sebastian or whoever it may be pitching their business. So that's got to have a positive effect in the long run, I would, I think, like leading indicator of, of speed, right? And uh, maybe also there's so much capital floating around, better allocation of capital because you're able to see more, qualify more faster because that's always been the dream and the ambition, but it hasn't really sort of materialized, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there was this moment when a, a venture outfit called Angel List was um, yes. launched yes. Yeah. Um, by Naval Ravikant. Um, and the idea was to sort of make a more efficient version of seed investing mm. um, by having a lot of companies um, the sort of start, you know, very new startups um, visible on one platform so that investors could kind of compare in real time. Okay, if I want to invest in something that's sort of trying to build a SaaS business or whatever, mm. um, I can now see, you know, 40 examples of these mm. startups. So I can like compare them to each other because in the old style of venture, you know, you'd have a meeting one week with one SaaS company, a meeting the next week with two and then another one. And by the time you got to four, the first one had been funded by somebody else. Correct. So there wasn't that ability to compare, which is kind of a fundamental thing in investing. Normally, you know, public market investors, they're looking at a screen with dozens of stocks they could invest in and they're comparing, okay, which has got whatever, the best PE ratio, the best mm. book to value, whatever metric they like. And in real time, you can compare. And so arbitrage becomes possible where you spot, you know, mispricings that if, X is priced correctly, it follows that Y must be wrong right. because they're mispriced. So that relative pricing didn't really exist properly in venture. And with the speeding up of pitch talks, mm. um, because you can do some of it remotely, there is at least the possibility that um, some of that arbitrage opportunity creeps into venture, Yeah, which should yeah. make it more efficient. Yeah. And then the, the, I want to pull another thread around this. Um, and we will come back to the book as well. I guess this is all part of the book, which is to do with the kind of the next generation, the next era of venture capital. So not the future, not 10, 15 years out, but even, even months ahead, where if you look at uh, the same concept of remote and you think about expansion, so moving your money from country to country and investing in new ecosystems, you know, India, for example, parts of China, perhaps, even we've talked about Israel, but Israel is insular in a way, it's got its own thing going on. And new, even at parts of Africa, of course, over the next many, many years, the, the you know, Kenya, for example, is thriving as an ecosystem. Um, you know, Nigeria is slowly emerging as well. There's, there's a lot going on in the entire sort of, um, on the planet when it comes to the entrepreneurship in general. And um, I, I would imagine if, if you are now used to, talking, engaging in, you know, using your intuition uh, on whether a founder is the right person for you on the back of these screens and getting better and better and better at it, maybe using some other me metrics and measurement uh, indicators or uh, tapping into your, to your sixth sense a little bit more. Uh, over time, I guess you could expand and spread your money and build a more diverse portfolio of venture capital at a much higher and faster rate. Because you know, we know that the typical Silicon Valley 
uh, VCs are entering India, for example, you know, they, they're in Europe, they're changing the culture and so on and so forth. But do you also see this as being, like if you, if you do American ecosystem versus European ecosystem, just for a moment, um, I think I know the answer, but I'm gonna throw it at you anyway. If you think about the, the velocity, the pace at which these, these VCs are trying to internationalize to expand or diversify portfolios, who, who is using this remote advantage um, uh, to, to really get, you know, a, a differentiating win, a differentiating sort of uh, lead in this game? Hmm. I don't know that um, there's a specific VC firm that springs to mind as being um, the leader. Of course, yeah. we've just come out of a bubble period when actually being too fast turned out to be a bad thing because you deployed too much capital at the peak with not enough scrutiny. And I think, you know, in this discussion, I am excited for the arbitrage potential in being able to see 25 deals at once um, because you can do it on screen. But mm. we shouldn't forget that there were there was value and there still is value in the face-to-face -face meeting in terms of assessing the personality and character of the entrepreneur. And that's part of the judgment you make when you write the investment check. Um, you know, I was just having um, a chat, I was, some friend of mine was talking about, you know, one of the tricks that you would do when you were thinking about whether to back a founder was that you'd, you'd go out to a, a place to eat and um, the, the waiter, you know, the, the entrepreneur would order some food or coffee or whatever, and the waiter would bring the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And this was a deliberate setup by the VC who had staged it. And the thing was to see, you know, whether the entrepreneur can take that without kind of losing his cool. Right. Um, you know, if you just politely say, hey, that's nice, but, you know, you got me the wrong thing. Mm. You pass the test. If you just say nothing and eat it, you don't care. That's fine. You pass the test. But if you look rattled, if you're rattled by that, you're going to be rattled by running a company. <laughs> so not a good person to back. Yeah. So there are these tricks that people play in in real life. And I think it's it's difficult to replicate some of those on screen. Mm. Um, you know, it's funny, this chess scandal going on right now with mm. this guy who is said to have cheated. And it began because he was playing online. And of course, he was he had a computer next to him, or it seems he did. And he was, you know, getting prompts from the computer. Now, you can also cheat on screen in various ways, right? You might you might have notes scrolling down some kind of mm. teleprompter you might have people with whatever you know there are there are there are tricks that maybe can be eliminated when you're face to face mm. um so i think i think there are two sides to this but i think what we can say is that a world with this additional dimension of the possibility of re remote working you know adds as a possibility. And right. some VCs will make a lot of it, some won't because they don't like it, but it's got to be a good thing to have that additional option. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think it is technology if used in the right way at the right time, you know, for the right outcomes and, and so on, can be extremely powerful. And uh, there's no question in the venture capital world and, and venture money is such an important type of asset. I mean, it's such an important, um, ingredients for an entrepreneur, 
you know, not all of them, but many of them, and maybe more and more in the future, who get the formula right. And I would argue, actually, I mean, you know, that 1% of companies get venture capital, why shouldn't it be higher if the pipeline of emerging companies uh, have been cultivated in the right way, incubated in the right way, and actually are producing some incredible products and getting product market fit faster? Surely then VCs will be like, hey, this is awesome. The, yeah, I've got loads of money. I'd love to back many more companies and create many more, you know, successful, uh, disruptive organizations out there, be it unicorns or decacorns, right? Um, so uh, so I, I want to move towards, I have so many very, very interesting questions for you. And uh, I'm trying not to give the, you know, throw the controversial ones up first. So for, let's just talk about the book. Let's talk let's about the book. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's talk about the book because the power law. Now, of course, I, I, I've read through aspects of it. What is what is the power law uh, in you know in simple terms really? I mean, and, and uh, please describe it for us. So for those who haven't read the book, and you might compel them to go off and read it, perhaps. So t- tell us what is the power law. I chose the title because it's sort of the the sort of secret source, the big idea in, in venture capital. The idea is sort of you can express it very simply. It's that you know, in a portfolio of ten investments. Uh, the average return on one investment, right? No, say it again. The, the median investment mm-hmm. may be a zero. Um, in other words, a lot of companies are going to fail and basically return nothing. Right. And if you were a hedge fund manager and you had a investment position, like you bought a stock and it went to zero, that would be like a career-ending disaster. Mm-hmm. But adventure is perfectly normal, um, and all of your returns come from the right-hand tail of the distribution, meaning the one or two bets that go seriously right. And those go right, not in a kind of hedge fund way where you're up like 30% and you're very happy. They Mm. go right in the sense of like 10x, 20x, 100x. Um, So it's, you know, a thousand percent or more. It's a huge, you know, right-hand tail kind of performance. And of course, if one company does 10x and you have 10 bets in your portfolio, you've made back the entire fund with just one bet. And if it's 20x, you've doubled your fund with just one bet. Um, so that's the math of how these venture portfolios work, which means that you know, various behaviors follow. There's no point trying to kind of shoot for a okay return as a venture investor, because they sort of don't exist. As I said, the median return is zero. Mm. Um, median return is failure. Um, so each bet you make has to have the potential to be that 10x plus breakout startup. Um, And so that's in simple terms, the idea of the power law, it's the opposite to the bell curve distribution, which Mm. um, more or less defines public market investing, where the median investment is also the same as the average, it's in the middle of the bell curve, and extreme outcomes, extreme losses or extreme gains, like you lose 100% or you gain 10,000%, sort of almost doesn't happen. In venture, it happens all the time. Right. Got it. Understood. It makes a lot of sense. And so when you think about this concept of venture money, and it's early money, right? You're, the whole idea is that you're backing an idea at some stage, right. whatever stage, or and you actually you're backing a founder. Let's be honest. I mean, you're backing a founder. I say that sometimes, you know, as a founder myself, you know, at the early stages, you're actually backing me, aren't you? I mean, I, I today my idea is this, but frankly, I'll probably pivot 10 times and I'll try and raise... Um, you know, follow on rounds as much as possible. If you buy into me and you're convinced by me and then boom, you know, one day product market fit will happen and uh, lo and behold, we're all uh, very wealthy. 
And so do you see going back to picking great companies? And I'm sure you've done so much research on this. Uh, all of these different VCs, you know, and individuals, not just VCs. I mean, you've got the big firms, of course, the Excel, Sequoas. I know you talk about Sequoa in your book quite a lot. Um, but you have names, Vinod Korsala, who, who interviewed you recently, Peter Thiel, even Reid Hoffman. Even Reid Hoffman has, is, you know, with Greylock has gone into this space. And everyone's got their own sort of models, you know, their own X factor. So they like to believe, of course, and their own style and their own thesis and, and so on. Tell me one thing, because I'm desperate to ask you this. Is that actually accurate or are they different, but same, same? <laughs> um, so, no, there are differences. Um, for example, some specialize in super early stage mm. seed and series A. Others are doing bigger checks, uh, so-called growth investment to companies that already maybe are unicorns. And from that difference in check size, there follows a difference in sort of investment procedure. If you're investing in a big company, it's already going to have cash flows and you can analyze the cash flows in a spreadsheet and it becomes a bit more quantitative, like a normal public market investment or like private equity. Right. Um, whereas if you're doing super early stage, you can't do a price earnings ratio because there's no earnings. Um, and, and there aren't any data on like what the sales are because it hasn't <laughs> begun yet. Um, so then you're making more of a judgment, both on the person, as you said, just before mm. I but also actually I would say kind of on the space is not necessarily the specific business model that you're betting on because there's going to be a pivot and that will change. Mm. But, you know, somebody comes along and says, hey, I'm going to do, you know, security for the cloud, ID for the cloud. And you make a judgment, is that space already saturated? Or is it ripe for another iteration that's going to be very profitable? So I think VCs do make that quite a sense of central to what they do. You know, somebody comes with an AI idea right now. Um, any kind of pretty plausible person who vaguely knows what they're doing is going to get funded because people are super bullish mm. on building AI applications on top of the big uh, natural language models that have been released. Mm. Um, so, so I think there are differences um, in terms of like the stage that you invest at. And then there's, there's, you know, some companies, some VC partnerships like technical risk because they have technical people who kind of understand the risk okay. and stuff yeah. by engineering partners. Other people are like more marketing and they prefer product market fit risk because they understand it. Mm, mm, got it. Understood. And so do you see um, the, uh, thesis for some of these companies and i guess a lot of what we're talking about is is u.s centric for now it feels like when i'm asking the questions i'm thinking of the u.s kind of venture capitals um but that's not fair i think we'll move towards the the east and other markets too in a moment but do you think the, the let's just talk about the u.s contingent for a second so the the, the, the household names and the venture capital space uh, do you believe that they are um accepting of the the huge changes in the global startup economy given that there are many more ecosystems out there to choose from today than there were than there were 10 15 years ago which was very concentrated just in the united states and maybe in the west coast more so and now you're seeing these new um, ecosystems coming out do you think they are accepting of the fact that they want to put their money in these new e ecosystems knowing that the 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 level of risk potentially is much greater 
and therefore the failure rates will be much higher, given that those markets don't really have the same sort of ecosystem. And I mean, you know, you're a, you're an enterprise-ready software cloud provider. You're you're gonna naturally sell your products to the the enterprise of your country. India is a good example. Like the enterprise, you know, com- companies, software companies in India. Um, what you're seeing is they end up selling into the U.S. market. So they're based out of India. They sell sell into the U.S. market. They don't sell into the uh, the Indian enterprises as much. I mean, they have some business. Even Wipro and TCS and all of these other Indian-founded companies make most of their revenues, most not all of them, many of them, in the United States, right? Which is almost you know the mecca. Forgive me for using that term of of revenue for them. Do you see um, the U.S. Uh, accepting that understanding and saying, you know what, doesn't matter. We're going to fail a little bit more. We invested in India. That's cool. We'll take some bets. The psychology is different. The culture is different, but that's cool. But we have to get into that market. Or they're going to say, no, actually, we'll do a little bit of it, like 10% of our portfolio, but 90% will stay in the US because it's a sure bet. And we're probably going to get the 20, 20x plus. Well, I mean, you know, we can answer the question empirically by just looking mm. at what these guys have been doing in the last 15 years. And you know, the answer is that if we take Sequoia, um, probably the top firm in Silicon Valley, they went to China in 2005, they went to India and Southeast Asia in 2006. Uh, later on, they started a London office. Um, so they've embraced the idea of going abroad and they've stuck with it. It's true that, you know, normally the experience in the first few years is rocky, right? Because you don't know the market, you make mistakes, right. you might hire the wrong people to run your, you know, on the ground team. Um, and the, all of those things happened to them, but they mm. stuck with those markets, rebooted, fired people, hired new people. And and they're certainly very successful in China, pretty successful in India. And, you know, Europe, it's kind of early days, but I, I suspect they're going to succeed there as well. And that's just one example. So mm. I think they are embracing um, mm. these other markets. And the trade-off is, sure, the market could be challenging because you don't know it so well because it's it's less mature, but maybe the competition from other investors will be a bit lower. Mm. So that evens out. Mm. Got it. Okay, understood. So let's move to Europe for a moment because that's where we're sort of, well, we're not actually in Europe. We're, UK, we're the UK. We, we are out of Europe, but we're in that region. As an American, I'd say, let's look at Europe, but when we're, let's talk about the UK and then we'll talk about Europe and the venture capital system. So... Uh, I, I have a little bit of bias here, so then you can you can try and be objective for me. So I'm a British startup in the UK, and uh, I've seen the startup ecosystem here. And of course, I sell into surprise, surprise. I make most of my revenue out of the US because uh, I have US clients and for all of the, the reasons that you will know. I find the uh, UK venture capital market to be way more uh, conservative. You know that our mentality is different. At why that's the case, we can have that debate for a long time. You know, look at history, look at uh, um, invasions, look at the colonial past, look at you know the the demographics. You could you could go on and on and on. Whatever it may be, we are we are the way we are. And when I was raising money, and I don't think it's changed much because I, I advise a whole bunch of startups I've been invested too. It's still tough. You know, you you take the same pitch to the U.S. market, not all of the U.S., but of course, now Austin, Texas is buzzing. You've got many other ecosystems that have sort of emerged. Generally speaking, you get the meeting with the venture capital in the in the U.S., uh, probably eight out of 10 times through an email, by the way. So this is not like nepotism or some elitism, right? You just prospect them and you get a meeting. You may get it with a junior or an associate, but you get the meeting and you can pitch. 
doesn't mean you're going to get the money, but you get the practice, you pitch. And actually, a lot of the time, the mindset and the style and the approach is very helpful, right? So the VC is like, this is great, probably not for me, but go talk to Sebastian. Let him know I, I mentioned um, that you were this type of a startup or give my reference, and I'm sure he'll help you. That sort of referral network, that willingness to support is what makes that culture so unique, so powerful. And of course, that's, why, that's what's been exported all around the world. The European, UK, and UK in particular setup is not really there. And I want to, be, I want to stand corrected, actually, if, if, I, if, if it's possible. But what are you seeing? Are you, are, you, are you seeing that the venture capital mindset is changing? Is it changing fast enough? Um, and and what, 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 how hopeful are you of, of this, this uh, venture capital ecosystem in the UK in particular? And then we can talk about Europe, because I feel that's even more conservative, but you can, you can tell me otherwise. Well, I mean, maybe I can preface my answer by, it sounds slightly out of the box, but you, you, um, your startup had a co-founder in Bangalore, you were telling me, yeah. and yeah. so this may resonate with you, but, um, you know, one of the nice things about publishing a book in 2022 is that, you know, because we've gone global, I've had Zoom calls with people all over the place, including India and China and Africa and et cetera. Uh, and um, I had this uh, guy from Axel, big venture capital partnership based in Bangalore who got in touch. And um, he had been in the US earlier in his career. He'd been an uh, engineer at Intel and yeah. been in um, MIT Business School. And, you know, when he moved back to Bangalore, um, you know, in 2010, he started making investments. And I asked him, you know, how is has it changed between 2010 and now? And he described this cultural shift where initially the founders that he backed, you know, had trouble persuading the father of their girlfriend to allow a marriage, right? Because right, yeah. an entrepreneur was a loser and the social status of an entrepreneur was, was dubious. Uh, and indeed, um, this VC was asked by a founder to call up the prospective father-in-law to persuade him that entrepreneur does not equal loser. Right. That's that's how bad it was. It's believable. Uh, and then and then I said, you know, that's a good story. But what about 2022? Do you still make these marriage intermediation calls? I mean, <laughs> I know that venture capital is a service business, but that's some new kind of service here. And he said, no, no, today, uh, all the prospective father-in-laws are watching the TV series Shark Tank and they're mm. watching it in Hindi. And I don't have to make those calls anymore. And what that tells us is that the culture changes. Right. You can have a. Mm culture that is skeptical of entrepreneurship in 2010, but quite welcoming in 2022. Mm. And when I told this story to one, I mean, you may have a different reaction, but I told this story to one friend of mine who's um, Indian American. And she said that my story was backed up by data from, you know, diary prices, which you can track in the Indian newspapers. Um, uh, and indeed the status as measured by that uh, metric mm. has gone up. So, so I think that the point going back now, you know, you asked a question about Europe and is 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 it becoming friendly enough? Are, are VCs changing themselves and therefore changing the startup experience fast enough? And I, I think that we just need to give it time. I think it probably has changed quite a bit already. Um, if you just look at the way that, you know, if you, if you kind of just count how many uh, venture operations in London 
have American roots, right, mm. in their in their in their kind of corporate story. So you know, Balderton was a spin out of um, uh, of Benchmark in mm. California. Um, you know, Atomico uh, comes out of Nicholas Fenstrom's experience as the founder of Skype, raising money from um, American venture capitalists. Um, you've got Axel London, which mm. is obviously the same as Axel California. You've got Sequoia in London, again, another mm. example. Index Ventures is founded by Europeans, but who had, you know, I think they'd mostly been to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School, and they'd had experience working in the US. So very much the California um, venture mindset, but, you know, operating in London as well. So these people fundamentally have absorbed that Silicon Valley DNA, which is about introducing people to, mm. you know, to each other. Um, that's actually a big part of my the story I tell in my book about how, say, Apple's origin story, Apple was rejected by the first few people it went to speak to because Steve Jobs looked like he'd just come out of an ashram and he didn't have mm. shoes on mm. and he smelled bad. But, you know, he clearly had something and the people he went to see would say, not for me, but you should go and see so-and-so. And ultimately, you know, one of those so-and-sos saw Steve Wozniak's circuit board, saw how smartly designed it was, and ignored the fact that Jobs didn't have socks on and smelled bad, and, you know, backed them. And once that right. happened, right. you know, then you had the credentializing of Apple, which then unlocked the door to all of the Silicon Valley royalty and the ability to hire great engineers and all that stuff. So mm. I, I call that the whispering grapevine. You know, there's like this, this kind of, grapevine of of investors that whispers to each other oh check out so and so check out this check out that and if it exists in america and american dna is inside the leading venture firms in london it exists here in london too um and it's it just a matter of time before the ecosystem grows as deep and as fast and as effective as as it is in silicon valley but i'm sure it's going to happen Mm, mm, yeah, it's a, it's a fair point, and I think I like I like the example of the origins of some of these VCs. Um, I think that that is a fair point. the The other th concern I have with the UK European setup also is that you know we've been building some great innovations over the past. I mean, numerous stories. Arm is a recent one in the uh, semiconductor space. Software company after software company, and so on. And it feels like when you do laser stage rounds, so we build great companies. Actually, they do some really good revenue. They're pretty solid. You know, as you said, from an engineering standpoint, uh, strong pedigree, you know, good processes, good governance and so on. But when you think of exponential, if I may use that word for a moment, because I know Peter Demandis, of course, has almost owned that word. But if you think about the concept of magnification or amplification of growth of some sort, we somehow miss that trick in the, on this side. And then, of course, we have to pass that, that startup on or that scale up on to the, the great marketeers of the world and say, hey, you go, give them some money, more money and market like maniacs. Would you think that's going to change? I don't see why it shouldn't, but what's your feeling around that? That's more about scale up. This is not just about money. It's also about saying, we couldn't grow it and couldn't market it well enough. Why don't you? So just to be clear, you're, you're talking here about the tendency for UK startups to go public in the US or? Well, or a combination. What? What, one is to, to go public in the US. Uh, I don't know the stats around whether that's, um, mm -hmm. you know, it dominates the, the London Stock Exchange. But I think it's more about also, you know, once you've done your Series A round or maybe even your, you know, quasi Series B round, 
you for the big money, for the real money, you end up knocking on the door of an American VC. And we kind of know why. But of course, that's draining a lot of talent out of the, the UK market. A lot of founders then pack their bags, then they're off to the valley. And, you know, we know so many. Of course, you'll know many. I know many in that network who were here once and are now there. They've got their families and they're not coming back here. That's for sure. So it's that sort of drain of talent and skills. And of course, the next company they build, it's highly unlikely they're going to come back to London to build that company and go do that thing again, unless there's a supervening event. So how do you feel about that? Am I right in assuming that's the case? And of course, what's the risk of that to the United Kingdom? I mean, again, I would um, maybe optimistically posit that this is going to change and already is changing a bit. There's a story about, you know, TransferWise, which is now called WISE, the, yeah. the system for moving money across borders in a more yeah. cost-efficient way than banks. And Tavit Henriquez, the founder, was based in London. Um, and Andreessen Horowitz came to him and said they'd love to be an investor. But the condition was you had to move the headquarters to Silicon Valley, to which Tavit said, no, I'm not going to move to Silicon Valley. And Andreessen didn't invest. So, you know, time goes by, uh, TransferWise does very well. It's time to raise the next investment round. And Andreessen Horowitz comes back and says, okay, we screwed up. Um, we shouldn't have insisted you came to Silicon Valley. We'll now invest and you can remain in Britain. And Ben Horowitz, our co-founder, is going to fly to board meetings in Britain, you know, whatever it is, four times mm. a year, six times a year. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, that's just one story. But I think there's quite a few stories. I mean, DeepMind, in a sense, the AI company, it was bought by Google, but mm. it's remained operationally in the UK. And the founder, um, Demis Hassabis, feels very strongly about that. Um, so I think I think it's more of a mixed picture than you're implying. Yes, yeah, sure, there's been a magnet effect of talent moving to the US. But it's not true in all cases. And if I'm right that um, venture investors are taking a more global view, that remote working over Zoom has made that a bit easier. Yeah. It should it should be the case that over time the UK gets to keep more of its talent. Got it. Okay, great. I love the optimism and I, I support it. We have uh, another five or ten minutes left, so I'm going to throw as many questions as possible. So I wanted to I want to go down the path of luck and skill, because you talk about that. Um, you know, quite extensively. And I want to, instead of just getting you to describe it, because I think we all sort of understand what you mean by that, I'm going to talk about, um, I just want to get your viewpoint on, on uh, uh, firms, venture capital firms, like, for example, SoftBank. So not having a go at SoftBank, of course, but SoftBank, who made some very, um, they're very adventurous, Let's put that they were very adventurous and they had a lot of money and they backed some really interesting companies. I remember we, we my company released a report in 2015-16 on the ARVR market when no one was really talking about ARVR. And we called it ARVR because we felt AR was more important than VR. It was going to get mass adoption versus VR. And we still believe that, still believe it. And of course, so does Apple, uh, which is why Apple is down the augment reality, augmented reality path and then Meta is doing something different. So when, you, when it comes to luck and skill, when you have too much money and uh, almost in abundance, almost a limitless pool of, of cash, and you start putting a billion dollars into companies like Improbable, for example, 
or $600 million it was then, and they weren't really doing any revenue and so on. And there are numerous examples of that. Um, where, where does this luck and skill, how would you describe that in that context uh, with, with SoftBank or any other VC that you believe is, is, is sort of setting the record to some extent in terms of the amounts of money they invest in the company, pre-revenue even? Yeah, I mean, I do think that Masayoshi Son of SoftBank um, is somebody where the skill, it's hard to be confident about the skill, right? Because he sprays money around with gay abandon. And what it really seems is that he takes a view that, you know, tech is going up globally. He likes tech. He's long tech. He wants mm -hmm. to be very long tech all the time. And in order to have lots of exposure to tech, He's willing to write lots of big checks very, very fast and not worry about, you know, whether the company is actually good or not. And so he would spray money at a company like WeWork. And instead of telling the rather, you know, vainglorious founder, Adam Newman, to cool it a bit and, you know, take his charisma, but also be a bit disciplined and be a good steward of the capital. Instead, he tells Adam Newman, you should be crazier, faster, bigger. It's really not what Adam Newman needed to hear because he was already pretty crazy and fast. Uh, and so I don't think that deal selection and certainly not deal sort of stewardship um, in the case of Masayoshi Son exhibited any skill really at all. Mm. Um, I think he just had this like, if I just bet big on tech all over the place, tech as a whole is going up. Um, so I don't, so, but I think there are other venture firms where one can construct an argument that's a cynical argument that there isn't really skill. And the argument would go something like this. Um, if you have, um, you know, in year one, um, uh, you know, 100 venture companies get started, um, just like orangutans flipping coins, you know, or playing maybe a better analogy would be roulette in this case, because, um, you know, there's 36 numbers. Um, and they're all putting, you know, money on four or some mm. particular number, mm. you know, three of them out of a hundred roughly will, will hit the jackpot and get a, a 36x return. Mm. Um, and that 36x return will be so dramatic and wonderful that they'll get a halo effect. They'll look like geniuses. And then in, you know, years three and four and five, when people know that there has been that jackpot, the great entrepreneurs will want to be funded by the jackpot winning genius. Um, and so you, so so the people who are lucky in year one with the roulette wheel turn into the people who have better deal flow in year four. And then that becomes a sort of self-perpetuating sort of mm. path dependency. Mm. Um, and it's not that they're really skillful. It's just that they were lucky plus deal flow, lucky plus momentum, yeah. uh, lucky path past dependency. Um, and that was a sort of theoretical model that I took very seriously when I started my work. And I worried that all of these guys are basically just lucky because they started that way with a lucky hit. And then, you know, and the reason I concluded that it was not luck is that when you get up close to the really good VC partnerships and you sit down and spend, you know, five, 10, 20 hours with them, as I did, um, you start to understand the thought process and you realize it isn't luck because they simply think about stuff in a more deliberate, more subtle, 
cleverer, more disciplined way mm. than other people would. Um, and so that's in a way part of the motivating idea behind my book is like, you know, venture capital is this intellectual mystery. How do you allocate money mm. when there are no quantitative metrics? What is the skill? And I try to define the skill. And um, at the end of five <clears throat> years of working on it, I think I did define it. And I think that definition is robust enough that one can exclude luck as an explanation for benchmark success or Sequoia success or Axel success mm. or any of these really famous um, you know, anchor companies in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very interesting. And, and, and I could probably take that example and apply it to someone's career as well. You know, someone who's climbed up the, uh, the ladder super fast to become whatever, some sort of a C-suite executive, some aspects of this, this luck and skill, um, you know, division, the duality of this is, is also very important. So great. Thank you for that. And uh, now a couple of, couple of very important questions. The first one is the, the future of venture capital, of course, and the past where it's now future of venture capital uh, is an important, um, an important topic, subtopic for us because of a few key issues. The first one is this, this idea of uh, embracing differences as in diversity. And of course, that's super hot right now on both ends. Uh, one is the type of partners we have in the LPs and the associates and the venture managers. They come from different backgrounds, from they think differently, they apply their minds differently, so on and so forth. We know the logic there. And then on the other side, we are investing uh, deliberately and actively with awareness in founders who come from, you know, um, different backgrounds. Okay. So that's kind of pretty popular these days. And I think it's good. This is fantastic. And it, it was a missed opportunity in the past and things are changing. But tell me what your view is around all of this stuff as candidly as possible. And I ask you this question with with, um, hashtag elitism, because if you look at the the source of employees uh, or people who go into a VC, generally, I was looking at a report just the other day, the top three or four companies are the the Goldman Sachs, the McKinsey is right at the top, interestingly, uh, City, a few others. And there's sort of the usual suspects, and Microsoft as well, actually, companies who um, have executives who then end up in some sort of venture capital environment. And um, I haven't looked at, this, looked at the stats in terms of their backgrounds, but I wouldn't be surprised if many are from Ivy League universities and so on and so forth. But, or not. Is it changing? Do you see this whole dynamic changing like the companies are trying to change their leadership structures uh, to what extent is it changing? How hopeful are you? I just want to get your viewpoint, you know, in general. Well, look, I think, you know, first thing is, in general, I agree that diversity has been underemphasized. It was a bit of a missed opportunity. And if you're trying to, you know, if the, if the aspiration of venture capital is to invent the future for all of society, it better look a bit more like society. And so I include the data in my book showing the lack of diversity. So, you know, when I was uh, wrapping up the manuscript um, a year or so ago, uh, it was the case that of all the venture, the investing partners in Silicon Valley, only 16% were women, which is a crazy low number Mm. and way lower than if you benchmarked it against investment banking or management consultancy. Um, Equally, there were only 3% of partners who were African-American and that's way low against competitive finance, other kinds of finance. Um, 
And the provenance from a couple of Ivy League schools is overwhelming. So Stanford Business School and Harvard Business School account for some extraordinarily high proportion of, of venture capitalists, excuse me. <clears throat> but um, um, so, so all of what you say about the lack of diversity is true. Um, I think it's worth explaining the flip side of this, uh, not necessarily to agree with it, but just to, to explain how we got to that lack of diversity. Yeah. Which is, if we take the example of the venture ecosystem in Israel, right? Israel um, is, I think it's got more VC and tech per capita than any other country in the world. Very successful high-tech mm -hmm. ecosystem. And it's often been remarked that one of the reasons why it's done so well is that a high proportion of the entrepreneurs went through a specific army unit for national service. And this is the elite um, sort of um, tech uh, division that does um, sort of, uh, you know, eavesdropping, cryptography. Yeah. Um, signals intelligence. I forget, it's called the 801 Regiment or something like that, whatever, right. whatever it's called. Right. And these guys basically take the smartest scientists out of school, they put them through a technical training, and they, you know, they're in the military, so it's a fairly sort of intense experience, and they form very close bonds with each other. And then eventually they get out of national service and they go into the private sector, they found tech companies, and it's super easy for a venture capitalist who may also have been to the same special yeah. army unit yeah to do a background diligence check on an entrepreneur because they went to the same army unit mm. and they can call like six people with one degree of separation and say is this person reliable should i put money into the startup that they're going to do and that has fostered an enormous amount of value creation that that super tight incestuous ecosystem mm. now the point of the story is that it's not that it's really about I don't think it's really about race or gender, actually, in Israel. It may be a whatever. But it is about kind of the, the, the value of close ties, right? The ability to check people out, to trust. It creates enormous trust, mm. which is important for company formation and company funding at the beginning. Um, and so what's happened, I think, in Silicon Valley to pivot back or, to, or in Europe is, is that you know, investors want to be able to uh, check people out, do background diligence. And so they find it easier to do that with somebody who is a couple of degrees of separation at the most. Right. And that tends to be somebody who looks like them, went to the same university as them, etc. Mm. And mm. you have to actively be determined to break out of that mm. in order to do so. And I think the penny only dropped that this was important with Black Lives Matter with the Me Too movement. So we're talking three, four years ago. And, and now the change is beginning, but it is, you know, they're late to the game. Um, and, I, and I hope it does gather momentum now. I do tell a story in some detail in my book about Kleiner Perkins' attempts to be a leader in terms of recruiting women. Uh, John Doerr, the dominant partner at the firm, between roughly 2004 and I don't know, 2018 or something, um, really did believe in advancing women and he hired a lot of smart women. Mm. But they did not flourish at Kleiner Perkins because it wasn't enough to have the boss 
trying to hire women, you had to change the way that the other male partners behaved towards them. You couldn't have, you know, and, and that culture didn't change. Yeah. And so Kleiner Perkins did the right thing, hired smart women and ended up with a sexual harassment suit and it just totally blew up in their faces. Um, and so that's an object lesson. It's a cautionary tale about how when you decide to change the culture, it better not just be a decision at the top and you're done. You're not done. Mm. You have to change the culture throughout the organization to allow women to flourish and to allow you know people of color to flourish as well. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's, um, so in, in other words, change is coming. It, it, it's, you know, the venture capital world is a little bit behind the curve, but you say the change is coming. And I guess what we have to keep a watchful eye on is change at a, uh, at a mass scale amongst the talent and the management in these companies where, you know, you have to have the will to want to change, but they are, they are those who won't change as fast enough. I often call them rigidites, borrowed from the term Luddites, where, you know, no matter what you do, you could shake them like crazy, but actually, of course, they're not willing to change. And I think hopefully there will be a clean out as well. I mean, you know, it happens in corporations where, listen, if you're not with the, if you're not going to get with a program, you've got to move on. Uh, our culture is changing. So I'm hoping that venture capital will do that as well. And that's going to be good for companies, good for entrepreneurs, because, you know, as an entrepreneur and I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I, I don't go by this, but I, you know, I'm an ethnic entrepreneur. It's, it would be amazing to see uh, when I go pitch that you have a diversity of, of partners in the room. It feels, it feels good. It feels comfortable as I don't feel uncomfortable if they are all of a certain color or they're, they're all white or they're all black or all Asian. But I think it's nice to have that mix and it makes you feel like you're being understood. It makes you feel like you can, um, there's relatability. There's relatability at many levels. Although I'm a Brit, I'm also of Indian origin and I, I'm in London. So if you've got a Londoner who's a British Indian, even better. And, you know, that's just the way human beings work. That's how matching hypotheses works. That's how social psychology works. So I think I'm glad you say that positive things are going on there so that I'm, I'm hopeful uh, for that. So we're coming to the end of our session. It's been a fantastic, insightful discussion uh, for me, absolutely, at least, and, and hopefully for you too. I want to close off by just asking you, you know, you're, you're of course an author and uh, you're probably, you know, you've got loads going on and you're researching and you're writing. Um, are you planning to write another book? And I'd be surprised if you say no. And, and if you are, what would it be about without giving us too many clues? <laughs> I didn't see how I can answer the last question without giving you some clues. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a leading, it's, a, it's a leading question. I'm throwing you right in. You're like, I've got to tell you anyway, don't I? <laughs> um, I mean, the answer is, sure, I want to write another book. Uh, you know, I've done five. I'm not stopping now. I enjoy it. Um, yeah. Uh, and... You know, I've got a couple of ideas. Um, I, I, it always takes me a while. You know, I, you, it's a long process to both generally research a, an area and then figure out how you could add value to it and then figure out um, whether you can get the access you need mm. to be able to write the story you have in your head. So it's kind of a three-level chess game. Um, and, you know, I looked at um cryptocurrencies and the whole crypto investing world and i find that intellectually fascinating mm. it may be a little early to write that book um so i may defer it but it's certainly interesting i'm interested in artificial intelligence as well mm. um so i'm i'm looking at a couple of options 
Mm. Are you, I, I'm sure you read a lot of authors. One of the authors that I'm a big fan of is Kai Fu Lee when it comes to um, AI related work. And his, his recent book, um, AI 2041, was fascinating where, you know, he's talking about the concept of AI because it can be quite technical, you know, AI, you know, with or without use cases. And then he's partnered with a, a um, uh, you know, a science fiction writer who's brought in real life stories to bring to life the, the you know, NLP or computer vision or deep fakes. And it's beautiful. It's beautifully done. Have you ever considered partnering or co-authoring? I think you may have in the past. I don't know. I haven't researched that. But that could be interesting with the genius that you have and, and the knowledge with another author who might be diametrically opposite, but taking a different take. Have you considered anything like that? Um, I, I once wrote a book proposal with a um, Harvard professor who's a good friend of mine. Um, and for various reasons, it was about the internet at a time. And we, we, we sent in this proposal in like 2001 or something when, you know, nobody wanted to hear about another internet book, um, even though ours was, of course, different and very good. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so that never happened. And ever since then, you know, it hasn't fallen into place that I kind of had a conversation with a friend and we thought, oh, we should do a book together. Um, I guess the solo journey gives me a lot of uh, control, which is nice and sort of solves some potential negotiation problems. I do work, I should say, it's not completely solo because I always have a research um, associate with me. And that's normally somebody who's kind of 23 years old and will one day be writing their own books. And working for me is a good chance to kind of see from the inside how it's done. So I hope it's a mutually beneficial experience. You know, I get terrific output from a sort of super smart person who can go through a lot of secondary sources and, you know, in discussion with me, kind of figure out what's interesting in them. Um, and in return, they get a feel for how I put books together, you know, what I'm, you know, what the process is. Mm. Wonderful. Okay, great. So, uh, we look forward to the next book whenever it comes out. Uh, I've had a real um, you know, pleasure talking to you and learning from you. And thank you for giving us your time. Uh, before we close, you know, um, what has been the experience um, like? Uh, what, what's, the, what's been the experience for you on this show? How has it been for you? Some feedback would be great. We always like to get some input so we can do better. Uh, but it'd be nice to hear how you've enjoyed the last, what, 55 or 60 minutes. It's flown by, Af. It's been great fun. No, no, seriously, I, I, I've, I've enjoyed chatting. Um, the questions are good. Makes me think. Um, although I must have done seventy-five podcasts about venture capital in the last ten months, I think I did say things on this one which I hadn't said elsewhere, and that's a that's a tribute to your questions. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, it's a real pleasure, and uh, hopefully we'll bring bring you back on the show another time when you've got your next book or something quite powerful that you've written in one of the one of the journals. Because I know you're a journalist too. So, with that in mind, thank you so much, uh, Sebastian. Look after yourself. Um, be well. Keep smiling. Keep writing amazing, um, uh, amazing words on on a piece of paper. It inspires us all, and it teaches us about you know teaches us about the world. Exposes us to things that we haven't seen before, and for that we are grateful. So. Uh, be well, take care, and thank you everyone who's watching the show. Subscribe, click subscribe, just look down there. Uh, somewhere that red button clips, you know, click it and be part of the journey. And this is Afmahatra signing off. Thank you. <laughs>